As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Everybody to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. With me to talk U.S. Men's National Team and a whole bunch of MLS is Lyle's dad. It's Sam Stachel. Hi, Sam. How you doing, buddy? <laughs> I'm doing great. Uh, I've never been introduced that way before uh-huh. on a on a podcast, or maybe ever. Like <laughs> so, you don't introduce uh, yourself. Thank you. Two people I, as was, Lyle's dad. No? Yeah, hello, uh, Lyle's dad, Sam. Um, <laughs> pleasure to meet you. Um, no, it's going well. Thank you for having me on the show. I am excited. We're going to have some fun. We sure are. Uh, we have, as I said, those two topics to be discussed. Uh, we also have some questions from Twitter. And I wrote that introduction before we got this question off Twitter, but I'll start here. It's from a person with a, a prominent mustache. I forget his name, but a creepy mustache on Twitter who also writes about MLS said, uh, Sam, when you're walking your dog and he stops to greet another person's dog, what is your go-to way to end the interaction? Is it have a good one? Is it come on, bud? Is it just silence and staring at the ground? It's it's a combination of have a good one and come on, bud. It's like it's like usually like okay, buddy, let's go, and yeah. then like have a good day. Like after that, um, <laughs> right. and usually usually my dog is doing something stupid, so like we get to like laugh, like share, like kind of like a weird forced chuckle on the way out. Ah, the well. weird forced chuckle. That's yeah, the, that's so. the best. But <laughs> I like to spice it up sometimes. Like the other day, I'm a Chicago Bears fan. The other day, he was like very excited. Because my, my dog gets more excited to, to greet humans than other dogs. Yeah. So he was very excited to greet this other person wearing a bear shirt. And he got a little too excited and he like tried to jump up a little bit. And I was like, all right, Lyle, like, I know we like the bears, but that doesn't mean you get to jump. Okay. So I felt pretty good about that one. Did, did it land? Did you get the laugh? Yep. All right. Yep. I got a laugh and I go bears. So that's, there you go. Go bears. That, that, that's, a, that's a good one, man. I appreciate appreciate the interaction. You're already ready. Yeah. Like you've already got the Lyle's dad knowledge down. Well done, sir. (laughs) Uh, We do have more questions. They're not about Lyle. They are about the U.S. men's national team. We got the roster for the... You just lost a lot of listeners. (laughs) That was it. It That was it. Now now that that's out of the way, they've moved on. Yeah. Is that what allocation disorder is? Like halfway through, do y'all just switch to to dog chat and baby chat? I'm sure Paul loves it when you compare owning a dog to having kids. I don't do that, actually. <laughs> that is wise. I think. Maybe I do. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not a real dad, so I don't know. I don't know. You got to feed him. You got to take care of him. You got to take him to the vet probably stuff. Like, it's probably like half a percent of what the, what being a real parent is. Like, I have to, you know, there are some commitments involved. It's not that big of a deal, but yeah. All right. 
I mean, I, I, I have a know. dog. You I have, have a dog. Laugh. There you go. You have a dog. <laughs> Sam is loudly declaring that for the listeners, and I'm glad we've made that clear. Uh, we also uh, have a roster for the upcoming Nations League games and the friendlies. We're going to go through it position by position. We'll see if Sam has any thoughts on it. Uh, I'll get my thoughts if I have any. We'll start with the goalkeepers. We've got Ethan Horvath, uh, Chituro Odonze, and David Ochoa. And I should probably mention with those names in mind that I sort of expected this to be the more senior of the rosters and then the Gold Cup roster to be more experimental. Based on those goalkeeper names alone, Sam, have I got this wrong? Or is this just that like Zach Steffen isn't available because of the Champions League? So this is going to be the more senior team. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's sort of a with goalkeeper. I think it might be a little funky because mm-hmm. I wouldn't be shocked to see Matt Turner go to the Gold Cup just because like you, you only get to play one goalkeeper. Right. Um, so it's a little bit different than the other position groups but yeah i mean stefan would be there if not for the champions league final as would pulisic we'll get to him later mm-hmm. um i would imagine for nations league stefan and turner will both be there maybe with horvath as well um on the final group for those two games in denver but we'll see and we did have a question from uh bill di filippo uh will david ochoa booting a ball into the stands cause an international incident or will he get away with it because of the well-documented commitment to neutrality by the swiss yeah, no chance he gets away with it. This will be the straw that breaks the camel's back and plunges Switzerland into a full-fledged armed <laughs> conflict. Uh, it will be David Ochoa. <laughs> and, and you know, I think I think we know one thing for certain. Adrian Heath and Michael Boxall will, will I think, be applying for oh, Swiss yeah. citizenship and taking up arms against Ochoa. <laughs> I love the idea of that being the thing that finally breaks the neutrality. Yeah, like, we've dealt with that. a lot. <laughs> But this is it. Now no we gotta, more. Now, now we gotta. We gotta. We gotta call it. Cross. Cross the line that cannot be crossed. <laughs> uh, with our defenders, there are ten of them. Again, a combination of I'm going to say established names, less established names, and new names. We've got John Brooks. We've got Reggie Cannon, Justin Shea, Serginho Dest, Mark McKenzie, Matt Miazga, Tim Ream, Brian Reynolds, Anthony Robinson, and DeAndre Yedlin. Whew, I think that's all of them. Uh, Sam, for you. Uh, other names that you are excited to see uh, that could be like the big names, like John Brooks, because of what he's done in the Bundesliga. It could be Justin Shea, who uh, has no appearances except for Bayern Munich's reserve team. DeAndre Yedlin coming back in the fold. Uh, what do you make of those defenders? Yeah, I think, you know, we all get excited about the unknown, right? And mm-hmm. the unknown in this case is Justin Shea, that guy that you just mentioned. He is 17, for those of you who do not know. He is currently on loan. With Bayern Munich from FC Dallas, uh, myself and my athletic colleagues, Paul Tenorio and Jeff Reuter, reported on Wednesday uh, that Bayern and Dallas are, are talking about a sale. Uh, a couple of sources expecting that to get done in the summer, uh, probably for like three or four million or thereabouts. People I've spoken to are really high on Che. Uh, he was an all USL League One selection in 2020 at the age of 16, which is, you know, USL League One is USL League One, but that's that's no joke making making the the best eleven for the league at that age. Um, and he's done really well at Bayern. He's been training with the first team a little bit over there in Germany, and they want to keep him. So that's really positive, and I'm very excited to see him potentially. Um, I'm excited to see his development in general, um, but I'm excited to see him possibly in this game. Um, so yeah, that's the one that really sticks out for me. Um, I would say similar for, for Brian Reynolds as well. Um, if he's able to get in and then Yedlin coming back into the fold first, first call up, I believe since November, 2019 for him. Um, he's done well at Galatasaray since he moved to Turkey. So yeah, those are, those are three that kind of stick out for me. And then obviously, you know, some big injuries with Aaron Long being out for a long time with his Achilles, uh, Chris Richards being hurt as well. Although that doesn't sound like that major of an issue, but it will keep him out for this game. So let's let's take a, look, a closer look at some of those then for a second. We had a question from Yaz Nasty on Twitter. Uh, that's it's a lovely username to get us going. Uh, Yedlin <laughs> yes, is back, nasty. he says. Yes, nasty. I should have hit that harder. You're right. Uh, Yedlin is back. He seems to not get talked about much in favor of Reggie Cannon. Maybe it's just Yedlin being more of a known quantity versus Reggie Cannon having more upside. But putting their teams side by side, I do think it's a bit closer. Again, this is yes, nasty. Uh, then there's Destin Reynolds, too. Uh, Sam, what would be your right back depth chart if you're sort of drawing it up today? And is Serginho Dest on that depth chart, or do you have him starting at left back instead? I mean, ideally it's Serginho Dest over there right but Mm -hmm. I think for the for the moment he's the left back 
Um, man, I think probably Canon is first. Uh, I, I gotta be honest. I'm not watching a ton of the Portuguese or the Turkish leagues. No, um, uh, you you know, I barely have enough time to watch MLS, which is my job. So, (laughs) you know, like just, there's just like not a ton of other games that are being consumed at this moment. Unfortunately. Um, I, the thing that I really like about Yedlin is his versatility and his ability to go forward. Right. So he's the sort of guy where even if he doesn't start at right back, yep. you can throw him on if you need a goal. Um, you can throw him on even higher up the field. Um, although with the, the crop of wingers the U.S. have, you don't really want to do that. But you have the ability to. Right. And so I really like that with him. He's a veteran presence. He's a guy that's been around. He played in the World Cup in 2014. So I think it's good from that standpoint. Um, I think Cannon is still number one on that depth chart. Um but, you know, he's not just competing with the right backs, the other right backs in the crew. If if there's a left back that surpasses him and what he's able to offer on the right, then I think that left back will get run at left back and Dest will move on over. So, you know, there's real challenge for that position. And do you have do you have a like a preferred starting tandem when it comes to the center backs? Because I would have assumed it would have been John Brooks and Chris Richards. Richards now uh, injured, as you mentioned. So mm-hmm. I guess the options could be Matt Miazga, Tim Ream, though he makes more sense as the left center back as opposed to the right one, and then right. Justin Che, who is playing right center back for Bayern. And Mark McKenzie. As oh well. yeah, my bad. Mark okay. McKenzie also in there. Um, I would assume it'll be Miazga. Um, in terms of my personal preference, again, you kind of want to see more of the unknown, right? Um, we've seen Miazga quite a bit with the national team over the years. I think we have a good idea of what he is and what he is not. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hate seeing McKenzie or Che next to Brooks, but, um, I think it'll be Miazga. I do too. But yeah, I I wouldn't mind the experimentation. I don't know if we will end up seeing Justin Che though, just because it could be one of those players that he brings in. And like Beralta brings in just to see how he does in camp to get him used to it. Yeah, I don't. I looked up the German like work permit regulations just to see if there was another sort of like oh he needs this cap to get one. I don't think there's anything like that. No, he has he has a German passport. There we go. So exactly. he does not. He does not need that. So then then what it what it looks like to me with that in mind is that if we don't see Che, that means yeah it, it was sort of that sort of camp to bring him in and get him experience. But if we do, then to me that's a sign that he is above expectations or performing above the level that was expected such that now he's getting minutes with the senior national team as a reward for coming in and looking as sharp as he does. So basically, if I see Justin Che starting in this game, should I then assume that he will be starting in the World Cup in 2022? um yes clearly Definitely. no cool. perfect <laughs> um no just writing down sam guarantees world cup qualification so. like, do you remember do you remember some of these friendlies like some of the guys like who was it russia hmm, 2012 josh gatt you remember that one? Oh yeah oh like, yeah a lot can happen a lot right? can happen <laughs> a lot can happen i wouldn't make any assumptions if che comes in and he does well and he gets playing time i think you can then take that to mean that he's playing well in this very moment and then we'll see what the future has in store i think it's fair to be hopeful for what he might turn into but can we bank on anything happening 18 19 months from now no you know, when Sam is the voice of reason, it's both uh, reassuring and alarming at the same time. So on that <laughs> note, let's talk about the midfield. There are seven of them. Kellen Acosta, Tyler Adams, Julian Green, Sebastian Legette, Weston McKinney, Eunice Musa, and Jackson Yule. Now, there obviously, there was the news that Tyler Adams uh, will be out for U.S. national team duty due to injury this summer. So our number six in terms of like... Let me try that one again. Uh, so our number six options are slightly limited. Are you okay with seeing Kellen Acosta get more minutes then? Uh, because Ryan Enbaum is also curious. He asks, is Kellen Acosta the most natural replacement for Tyler Adams on this roster slash in the pool? Uh, and also suggest that Sam should plug for new Hoover vacuums, new Hoover vacuums when mom is visiting and your apartment needs what? a recovery run. What? What is, is that a real thing? Or is I that don't like know. a play on new Who? I believe Hoover. it's a play on new, new Who. That okay. would be my guess. It's spelled N O U dash H O U V E. I'm not really up to date on like the vacuum industry. I won't lie. <laughs> um, more of a sweep and swiffer kind of guy. So not a ton of vacuuming that goes on. Um, I forget the question. Kellen Acosta. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, is he the most natural replacement for Adams in the pool? 
Mm, I mean, in some ways, yes. In other ways, no. Right. I think defensively in terms of the ground he covers and his experience and ability on that side of the ball. Yeah. He probably does a little bit better job of that than Jackson Ewell in terms of what Berhalter is looking for in possession. I think Ewell probably provides more of that than Acosta. So it's how do you weigh those two things? Um, what balance can each strike? Uh, what kind of form are they in that sort of dictates, okay, who's going to play? Um, I think for now, Ewell probably has the edge. Um, but I like Kellen Acosta. I do. I think he's performed well in Colorado. I think he's done a really nice job working himself back into the pool. You know, he was kind of in USMNT yeah. Siberia there for a while, um, lost in the wilderness. And, he, and he's he's got he's gotten himself back on track. And I think that's positive. He didn't, He wasn't great against Northern Ireland. Um, I thought he was good in the game before that. Um, and he caught a lot of flack for that. But at the same time, I think you got to understand the context. Uh, he was in preseason. He hadn't played any matches in like four or five months. Um, so, you know, that's that's part of the deal. Um, and he was going up against guys who were in season and in form and playing next guys who were in season and in form. So, you know, I wouldn't hold that against him too, too much. Um, so I like Acosta, but I think that's real battle with Yule. And I think Berhalter has shown so far that Yule is probably ahead of Acosta on that depth chart. So you and Paul obviously have a lot of like reach, a lot of coverage. You talk to a lot of different players uh, in Major yeah, League we're Soccer. Very, we're very important. Of course, yes. you're very important. We all know this. Huge. You're incredibly influential. Don Garber, always asking Sam, what do you think? How do you think? What should we do? Uh, and with that in mind, like, are there <laughs> players that you find yourself like having, if not like sympathy is the wrong word, but I guess are there players that you pull for a little bit more for whatever reason from the MLS perspective? Or is it just sort of you're watching the U.S. and whoever stands out? Uh, stands out um because hmm. i'm not even asking a bias question it's genuinely just like i think kellen acosta was one who once he was on the outside of the team i was like yeah, yeah he didn't show there were questions of fitness i think is what it was in the beginning and now he's back and i really do find myself pulling for him and so in that game against northern ireland i remember the coverage being like pretty divided of oh he was fine or no he was terrible and there didn't seem right. to be a lot of in between and there didn't seem to be a lot of positivity he and wasn't I great he wasn't very good yeah like, I think he would say that. And know? I think yeah. and I think in the first time I watched it, I thought he was better because I think I was rooting for him. And there was that I guess there was bias there. That is probably the term for it. And mm-hmm. I just didn't quite realize it. So I guess I'm wondering for you, if there are players that you maybe think like, oh, I want that guy to do well. I'm hoping yeah, he kind I mean, of redeems himself or what it might I think be. Everyone has that if they're being honest, mm-hmm. you know, and I think particularly for a story like Acosta, kind of like the comeback story, you know. Yeah who he was 21 years old and he went and he started a world cup qualifier and he was really good in that world cup qualifier at the Azteca. Right. And he had these huge things expected for him and he was playing well with Dallas and they won the supporter shield 2017 rolls around. He's going to play well at the gold cup and be a key part of that team and then be sold. And he started kind of slumping a little bit for Dallas. He was bad at that gold cup and continued slumping, doesn't get sold, actually gets traded to Colorado and had to find himself again. And it took him a while, but he did that. And I think that's a compelling narrative, right? And I think that's something that is easy to root for. And I think I would be lying a little bit if if I said that you don't want to see a redemption story like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I think when I'm watching a game, I'm, I would hope I'm able to separate those things. Um but, you know, we probably all have some blind spots in that area. I think generally speaking, um, I do like to see MLS guys sort of break the break the narrative that, oh, these MLS guys, they can't hack it, you know, um, because I don't buy into that at all um, on the national team level. So, you know, I, I, I do kind of enjoy them seeing them do well. But mm-hmm. it's not something that I'm like, you know, I need to like advocate for or push for or anything in my coverage. If it happens, like it's cool, warms my heart a little bit. But I like to think that, you know, I can stay relatively objective and neutral <laughs> in, in terms of how I write and report about it. 
Is there a player for you that like you you don't really get the criticism for or the the praise of? Like, is there somebody that you think maybe Twitter or social media gets it wrong? Because I do also have that experience at times where it's like I thought a player was good, I kind of watched the game in a vacuum, then I'll look on social media. I think that is actually what happened with Kellen Acosta. That then seeing the responses and be like, oh, did I see a different game? Like, I need to go back and watch. I think I have those moments sometimes. I think Michael Bradley was another example of that. Uh, going back to. Uh, the unpleasantness um, of like he seemed to me to be our best midfielder in in that time period. Certainly not the case now, but that was one where I think there was also pretty strongly divided opinion. So for you, have you had that experience of of sort of thinking a player had a good good game or a good tournament or had been good for the sure. team and knowing that it stands in opposition to the common uh, thought? Yeah, definitely. This happens with me a lot with young players in MLS and with the national team in particular. Uh, we've talked about this before, Taylor. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a tendency on soccer Twitter, American soccer Twitter, to like pull these like 10 second clips and be like, player X, you know, he's so good at the progressive passes. Look at this example. Or like, look at this example. Isn't this kid amazing? And it's just like, removed from all context like i think there was oh man i think it was the trinidad and tobago friendly and i can't even remember the player i think it might have been jesus ferreira and i'm not trying to knock jesus ferreira but somebody put a a clip out there and it was like look at how he look at how decisive he is when he carries the ball and how he attacks space and i feel like it was maybe joe (laughs) i feel like it might have been joe is what you're describing maybe it was joe but like you know, and, and to be fair, Ferreira was decisive in all of those things. But there was also no player within like 15 yards of him for this entire clip. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, okay, like we're gassing these guys up and we're not saying, well, look at the context. Trinidad and Tobago is playing like it's C team. None of them are in shape and there's no one within spitting distance of the guy. Like, of course he's going to look good. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's important to put those things in context. And I think, you know, sometimes on social media in particular, uh, we struggle to do that. So it's not like any one player in particular necessarily. It's just kind of that whole trend that I often find myself screaming about. Uh, Let's see if you scream about Julian Green, another one that we haven't talked about as much uh, in recent times, but he is back on this roster. Uh, Do you think uh, we had a question from our friend Alex on Twitter? Uh, Do you think Berhalter just wants to evaluate Green in a camp the way he did for uh, DLT in March? Uh, I'm assuming that's territory. I think that's territory in March. Or do you think Green's performance in the uh, Zwei Bundesliga this year has him above Luca territory in the depth chart? Well, you know, Julian Green was not on the provisional roster for Nations League. De La Torre was, mm-hmm. so I, I'm not sure that, that he would be above him. Um, I think Berhalter wants to take a look at Green, clearly. Whether or not he will get to or not is a, is an open question at this point. Um, Green's club, who, you know, Gruther Firth, that's, there's no way that's pronounced even remotely correct. I mean, it sounded good to but me. They are currently fighting for promotion to the Bundesliga. They're in third place heading into the last game of the season. They have a shot at finishing in the top two, um, but if they don't finish in the top two, they're going to be in the promotion playoffs, and Green is not going to be available for this Switzerland match. Um, There are a couple other guys, DK and Sargent, are in similar situations in England and Germany, respectively. So he might not even be there, depending on how things go. Um, But yeah, I think it's just kind of a case of of Burhalter wanting to take a closer look at a guy who by all accounts has had a pretty solid season. Um, so we'll see. We'll see if we see him. This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. 
We're going to talk about the forwards in a second. Uh, first, Sam, uh, I should confirm, Joe says it was definitely him who wrote that tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Joe. <laughs> uh, well, while Joe pauses uh, to contemplate his new rivalry with Sam, uh, I will tell uh, our listeners that we have seven forwards on the roster. Brendan Aronson, Daryl DK, Matthew Hoppy, Gio Reyna, Josh Sargent, Jordan Sibachu, Timothy Weah. I, as always, the attacking group is always very exciting. This group is, I think, especially so just because we do have so many players in such interesting form and exciting form. Uh, in my house, interesting tends to mean a negative thing. I mean it positively here because we've got Daryl DK being like the sensation of England or certainly the championship. Brendan Aronson looking like yeah. uh, he is very much at home with Salzburg, could be at home with another RB club in the future. Uh, we've got Matthew Hoppy, I think, being nominated for like young player of the year in the Bundesliga. <laughs> which is something. Uh, Josh Sargent is around. Timothy Weah is exciting. I, so I think it's just, it's, it's a group that I can't wait to see Josh who gets Sargent to play. is around. That was meant to be a dig. <laughs> uh, to be fair to Josh Sargent, yeah. he's not around much this is true. at Werner Bremen. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, anyway. that was such a soccer nerd burn, and I loved it. I loved yeah. it, uh, and it's really—I don't have any like I have no ill will towards Josh Sargent. I think I have a lot of ill will towards uh, Werder Bremen for tuning in yeah. and watching them, and they just keep making me think they're going to get it together and be fun, and then they're not. But I think Greg Berhalter shares that ill will. I'm sure he does. God, I didn't think about how much bad soccer national team coaches have to watch. That would be. That would be less fun. Uh, let's let's talk about a happier thing then. Who on this uh, of this list are you most excited for, Sam? Um, hmm. Tim Weah. Yep. And Brendan Aronson. Mm -hmm. How about that? Um, I really like Brendan Aronson and I think people are sleeping on him a little bit. Uh, I know he's in a position or he plays a position that is, you know, pretty stacked for the U S with Reyna and Weah and Pulisic and on and on. Right. Um, but I think he's a really good player. I think he's going to continue his rise. He's done really well at Salzburg, as you mentioned. I'm curious to see how long he stays there. I would guess at least another season. Um, but I, I would I would think if he continues to progress that there will be a relatively significant move in line for him, whether that's to Leipzig or whether that's somewhere else um, in the not too distant future. Um, also a big fan of his hair. Uh, looking for some tips from brendan you know he's got probably stronger follicles than i do but we're rocking uh i'm, I'm rocking a poor man's aronson right now so um if you're listening brendan just hit me up okay we can talk have you um, have you talked to him uh in person or over the phone or have you spoken to him much no okay. maybe like on a zoom press conference but but no never never uh never in person I was just gonna. I was curious how Philly he is, uh, but I, I a quick Google search tells me that he's from Medford, New Jersey. So maybe the question is how New Jersey Philly, is he? Philly suburb, I believe. Okay. Medford, All right. New Jersey. You know, it's on the on the Jersey side. Uh, I don't know. Can't answer that. But I I'm just, supposed to talk to Jim Curtin soon, so I'll ask him. All right, please do, but don't yeah. ask him. Ask him more relevant no, questions I'm to him. To. I'm gonna ask. <laughs> I just I see him play for Salzburg, and one of the things that stands out for me is when you have a new player and a young player at that coming into a new a new club. There, there tends to be like some hesitation, a little bit of slowness, either to play the style, to know what's going on. We saw it with Christian Pulisic at Chelsea, where some of like, especially early, he was like slow to pass. He wasn't trying to take people on, and that has obviously improved. But for Aronson, I saw him not short of confidence taking people on, but also not hesitating to get into scraps and get physical. And he does seem like a player who, like my dad, when he complains about the national team, it's always, there's a lack of effort. It's not the team that used to work so hard in the past. And I feel like Brendan Aronson is the type of player that he will very much enjoy. Yeah, I don't think he's ever been afraid to do that. Um, he was certainly had a good work rate in Philly. Uh, and as he kind of grows physically more, as he gets a little bit older, and I'm not, I don't think he's quite done doing that. Um, I think that would only improve in, ter in terms of like his willingness to go in. I think it really helped him having an American coach, yeah. you know, Jesse Marsh. So it, it eases the cultural transition, um, makes it easier for him off of the field, and it can give him a little bit more confidence and a little bit more buildup. And then the other thing is like Philly play a kind of Red Bull style, right? They don't love being on the ball. They're decent when they're on it, but they're kind of an off the ball, press you, turn you over, hit you in transition kind of team. So he was very familiar with the setup. Ernst Tanner came from Salzburg to Philadelphia, uh, the sporting director for the union. So there are a lot of kind of cross club connections there. Jim Curtin, who I just mentioned, and Jesse Marsh are very good friends. Um, so, you know, all of those things, I think, probably helped him hit the ground running. Um, but I remember I spoke to Jesse Marsh about this probably in February 
not too long after Aronson moved over there and he was already doing pretty well. And he was just really impressed by how Aronson was adapting and he was learning German really quickly and he was getting in with his teammates and he was working really hard and staying after and just basically throwing himself into things um, like 150%. And so I think that's positive and I think it bodes well for his future too. Uh, And one quick question from Sean Hardgrove for you Uh, from this group. Who, if any, do you expect or hope to see on the Gold Cup roster? Let's go with who would you like to see on the Gold Cup roster, which means we get to see them uh, a few more times for a few more minutes. Interesting. I don't know that we'll see any of these guys on the Gold Cup roster. Um, Certainly not Reyna, Wea. I would be surprised if we saw Aronson, who will obviously have a new coach in Salzburg. Um, I suppose DK could be there, but again, that would be surprising. I think the idea is that these guys in Europe have been playing pretty much nonstop with the exception of the COVID break for a long, long, long time. They could use some time off to recharge their physical batteries, to recharge their mental batteries, and really get things kind of rested and ready ahead of the really important matches, which are the World Cup qualifiers starting in the fall. Yeah, and even somebody like Jordan Sibachu, who uh, maybe wants, like, Berhalter would want a little bit more time with him. I think that move to Young yeah. Boys has been made permanent. So then there's the argument of give him some rest, let him get a full preseason, let him then have the form, and then you can play him later on down the road. So I think you're probably right that the answer is going to be none of these players do we think we'll see in terms of who I wouldn't mind seeing. Maybe it's Sibachu, just to yeah. see what he can bring in, or maybe it's Daryl DK to see if he is like the the number nine going into a competition, how he handles mm-hmm. that responsibility and that sort of uh, positional responsibility and requirements uh, playing for the national team. So that would be fine with me, but I'm also fine not to see anybody if it means they're resting. 100%. And if DK moves, if Orlando does sell him, I would say there's zero chance he goes to the gold. That is a very good shout. Well done, sir. Uh, we've talked uh, about the roster. Obviously, we will continue to talk about the U.S. roster uh, on the Total Soccer Show. But Sam, uh, I don't want to uh, make I want to make sure that we get to talk a lot of MLS because I have a lot of questions for you. I want to talk crew rebrand at some point, but I want to start with yes. the, the salary <laughs> dump. Uh, is that one of your like five favorite days of the MLS year? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, man, like people like to pigeonhole me, you know, and is that sort of like weirdo nerd who loves the I mean, yeah, it is. What can I say? It's cool to dive into. Uh, (laughs) What am I talking about? It's cool to dive into. It's interesting to see, especially this year, because we didn't get the numbers last year. Um, so it, there was, there was a little bit more buildup this time around, which as we all know, makes the payoff that much more exciting. And, and which ones were uh, the most exciting for you? Like, which ones stood out as being surprising deals in a good way? And then mm-hmm. which ones stood out as being the opposite of that? Uh, opposite, I'll start. Yeah, uh, I had a feeling Fra- you might. <laughs> Frank O'Hara stood out in a bad way. He's making almost $3 million for FC Dallas. 10th highest paid player in the league, I believe, according to these numbers. Although that, I don't think Jefferson Sotel, though, was on the list. So, you know, maybe he's the 11th. Um the production that he's provided for FC Dallas in no way even comes close to justifying that number. Like, you know, if I'm FC Dallas, I'm like asking real questions about, okay, when do I just start Ricardo Pepe every game? Because Hara isn't doing it. Um, so that's one that stuck out in a bad way. Jurgen Dom, the same, he's on 1.5 million in Atlanta, um, which is a lot of money for what he provides. Um, so those are two that kind of weren't great, you know, in terms of the ones that are, are good value, a lot, a lot of the homegrowns, right? Which is sort of a, a, a cheat and an unfair answer from my part. <laughs> um, but a lot of those homegrowns, uh, you know, they're on their first contracts. Some of them are really producing in a major way. Um, they don't even count on the budget. So that's, that's impressive. Um, but yeah, so a lot of those guys. And then in terms of the non-homegrowns, Mark Anthony K. I think makes around $250,000. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's in that neighborhood. And he's one of the more important players on one of the more important and influential teams in the league. He's done really well for LAFC, um, and he's an absolute bargain. So I think that's that's one where they're getting extreme value uh, out, of, out of that player and not even a homegrown player. So that's one that sticks out. And then, of course, my man, Nuhu, you know? I'm not even kidding, Taylor. Like, I'm not even kidding. Like, I think he's on 150 or or thereabouts. And, like, if I was voting today for MLS Defender of the Year, and it's admittedly very, very early, 
I think I would be voting for Nuhu. He's been awesome this year in that new left center back role for Seattle. Um, and yeah, I think he's, uh, he's, he, the Sounders are getting great value out of him for sure. So when we talk about salaries and, and, and that type of thing, it tends to be who is like making too much money for what they're doing, who is not making enough money tends to be mm-hmm. the way it goes. I hope this question makes sense. It does to me. We'll see if it does when I say it out loud. Who do you think is the most fairly or justly compensated player in the league? So that oh, could be yeah. somebody who's on 100000 but that seems to be like where, where they're at. It could be Carlos Vela because of everything he brings to the table. Like Who's the player who you think most justifies what they're earning? The most fairly compensated. That's interesting. Uh, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking in in those terms. Mm-hmm. Darlington Nagby, I think it, you know he he might deserve more. Uh, he's like at one point six, um, so that might be a good one. Um, Lucas Zellerion, he's like around two, maybe maybe somewhere in that area. Uh, hmm. Santiago Sosa, five hundred thousand for an intriguing young player with a big transfer fee. I kind of like that. Well, I like that one. Um, yeah, I think right. th- th- those those are three that sort of stick out. I do want to mention a couple other, like real quick. Seattle sure. Seattle was twelfth on this list, and they're kind of running the league right now. And it's kind of amazing. Rui Diaz and Ladero are not super duper highly paid DPS. They both make around two million, and they're two Ladero has been hurt like all year so far, but when they're healthy, they're two of the best players at their positions in the league. How much was so, Frank O'Hara making? 2.9. He makes all more right. than both of them. Yeah. So, and so does Victor Wanyama and so does Josie Altador and so does, you know, um, I think Albert Ruznock. Um, so Robert Barich, you know, Jurgen Locadia. Oh my God. That might be the worst contract in the league. Um, but anyway, those those guys are really good, and they're decent value too. So, just worth shouting out. All right, I, I like it. I also like the uh, the comparison to other leagues that you all did when you were kind of breaking down the salary dump. For listeners mm-hmm. who haven't read that piece, uh, how does MLS stack up to Liga Mekis? How well does it stack up to other leagues in Europe? Sure. So the average salary in MLS or average team spend on salary in MLS is around twelve and a half million dollars. Um, that's, you know, Liga MX is hard to know because there aren't like really reliable figures. But when you talk to people, and this has been reported, I think, by ESPN, they generally say that the the salaries, the average salary is about 20 to 30 percent higher. You know, for a team, for big teams like Tigres or, or Monterey or America, for instance, they might be spending 50, 60 million on salaries for their entire team. Right. So there's a big difference there. The top end in MLS is about 20 million. Um, and that's Miami and Toronto, pretty much. Uh, the LA clubs aren't too far behind either. Um, and then, you know, championship, the top end, when it, when they're accounting for promotion bonuses, right, that can get as high as $75 million. Um, and the average is probably 40 50 somewhere in there. So to give a little bit of perspective, um, I'm trying to remember the other leagues that we, we tallied up. You know, Serie A, the average, I think, was 65 Premier League, the average was like 70, 80, um, thereabouts, 80 million roughly um, per team just on salaries alone. And then, of course, the highest spending teams in those leagues are like above 200 on salaries. Um, So that's the perspective. Um, The weird thing about MLS is that a lot, like obviously the the spend isn't evenly allocated across the roster. So when you look at some of these teams, they're spending 70% of their total outlay on the, their five highest paid players and that's how the rules are sort of set up in mls um but it's interesting and, and it's a, a real dynamic that should be thought of and accounted for when you talk about spending in the league is there a team that bucks that trend a little bit is there one that is more sort of like uh equal across um yeah there are a few and i'm not sure that it's the right strategy right because when you look at the the teams that are most top heavy read them off i think inner miami was the most which isn't a great example but toronto fc la la galaxy um lafc seattle uh new england you know these are teams that have been successful right um in some cases you have some of the most successful teams in the league um oddly enough this sort of surprised me when i looked at it atlanta doesn't allocate as much to the top five as some of these other teams they're under 50 percent which only a handful of teams were um 
I think the Red Bulls were the were the most or the least spent the least on their top five relative to the rest of their of their spend, and they were under forty percent on their top five, which was by far the least of any team in the league. Um, so they're, I guess, the most equitable. Their curve is the flattest of everybody. Um, so yeah, take and, take that for whatever it's worth. And now we come to the uh, Ohio Ohio portion of the show. Uh, where yes. is SC Cincinnati in in their oh. uh, in their sort of roster spend? What FC do you make of what they've Cincinnati. spent and how they built? They are fifth overall in roster spend. That blew in my terms mind. Salary <laughs> that, that does not include mind. transfer fees, of course, which FC Cincinnati has not been shy about spending either. Uh-uh. Right. Um, so if you wanted to include transfer fees, they might even be higher on that list. Um, they are, they are pretty top heavy. Um, they're around 60% on the top five, but my goodness. And I think you're going to ask me about the story I wrote where I spoke with their president, Jeff Birding. I am. I mean, it's just, it's just so ill fitting that the pieces don't work together. And we can go into that more, but that's that's the main thing. It's not efficient because the pieces don't work together and the pieces don't work together because I don't think there's much strategy at that club. So when you're talking about the pieces, you're talking about the the roster, correct? Or you're talking about the front office as well and everything else going on. I suppose you could expand it to whatever you wanted to. But yes, I was referring to the roster. Gotcha. And with that roster, like, do you think is there an argument to be made that they are sort of spending to get things fixed? Or do you think it's a sign that they're still spending without a plan? I mean, they're trying to get things fixed, right? They would tell you the plan is to get things fixed. But if you look at just kind of where they've put their money, it's like, all right, last year you signed Jurgen Locadia and Yuya Kubo as DPs, right? Two guys that play striker can play on the wing. This year, what do you do? You sign Brenner, a number nine, as a DP, and you sign Lucho Acosta, a number 10, as a DP. And so Brenner kind of is redundant with Lacadia and with Kubo. And Kubo's now playing as an eight, which is not something he's ever done before, right? And isn't something that he really knows how to do because he's never done it before. And Cincinnati has suffered for it because, you know, defensively, they haven't been good in the midfield or anywhere else for that matter. So they have a lot. They have a decent amount of talented attacking players in particular, Right. It's not to say that these guys are bad at soccer or anything like that, Um, but they just don't really work well and they haven't really put any time or effort into improving the defense, which has been awful during their time in MLS. They signed Jeff Cameron, who should help, but I think he's almost 36 now. And, you know, I'm guessing he wasn't he wasn't signed for cheap. Um, They have six guys, I believe, making a million or more, which is most of any team in the league. And it's just sort of like there isn't any, I don't know if it's patience um, or they just panic and, and try and spend their way out of problems without thinking, okay, what do we actually need, right? And understanding that, that filling the holes that they have is going to take some time and being patient enough to, to actually have and, and disciplined enough to actually take the time to fill those holes um, as opposed to what they've done, which is kind of like, okay, like here's a shiny object. Let's go get it. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily with 24 seven us based live customer service from discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And in that article, it seemed to me like there was a consistent lack of humility, is how I would phrase that. That a lot of decisions seem to be, we know what we're doing, we've got this, trust us. And then there's the moments like, yeah, and then we reached out to the league about like finding a person who could advise us on this. And there seems to be a lot of 
decisions made from a we've run a club in USL, we know what we're doing, we'll figure it out as we go perspective. And that does mm-hmm. seem to be a common thing in my mind with teams that are just starting out is the ones who think we know what we're doing, we've run yep. a business, we've run another franchise in another league, we got this. They tend to be the ones that I think struggle more than others. I would I would agree with that. And and you can say it's arrogance, you can say it's a lack of humility, you can use other nicer words. At the end of the day, it's pretty much the same thing. FC Cincinnati thought they knew what they were doing. They thought they had a handle on things. And they didn't. Right? And to be fair to them, they were dealt a tough hand. They had two hundred and seventy days or so from when they were announced as an expansion team and their first game in MLS. Right? That's not a lot of time. No. It's nine nine months. You know, some of these teams have two, three, four years to prepare, right? And so obviously their outcomes can be a little bit more, they can be better planned. Cincinnati's doing it on the fly while competing in USL. They put a lot of energy in their final season in 2018 in USL into USL, and they didn't focus as much as they should have on MLS. And this is something that I think Jeff Birding told me, right? And if he could go back and do it again, he would change that, right? But they also approached it as, hey, We've done a lot of good things in USL on the field. We've done a lot of good things in USL off the field. I would say they've continued to do good things off the field in MLS. Their stadium looks fantastic. They have a good fan base, right? Like, that's hitting still. Um, But on the field, they didn't know what they were getting into. Um, They brought up, I think, 10 USL players, eight sort of, and then Fatai Alasha and Fernando Adi, who were with them in USL but were acquired Mm -hmm. for MLS halfway through that 2018 season. Uh, and they were counting on a number of those guys to like be big time players for them. And it was just like a really naive approach. Um, they didn't have a GM. Jeff Birding was the GM. He had, he has no technical experience in soccer at all. Um, Alan Koch was the head coach. He was in charge of a lot of recruitment. And then Luke Sasano, who former MLS player came over from the cosmos. He worked there in their front office while, while Gio Savarese was in charge. Um, he was the technical director and kind of assisting and helping out. And they just dug themselves into a hole, right? They burned through a ton of allocation money and expansion teams get extra allocation money. And that's a real asset, right? When you look at, at like Atlanta and trading for Darlington Nagby, how did they do that? It's because they had the extra allocation money from being an expansion team, right? When you look at LAFC and some of the, some of the moves that they've been able to make over the years, same thing. Right, Cincinnati burned through all of that on really questionable players, like early, and they didn't. So, so they hired Gerard Nijkamp from the Netherlands, a guy who doesn't know the league or the rules. He has a learning curve for all of that, and he doesn't have the advantage of having the extra allocation money because it's all gone, you know. And so, you know, they were the way I like to think of it broadly is Cincinnati was dealt a tough hand, right? They they were in a hole not of their own making, from the very beginning with the timeline. Um, and in their efforts to try and get out of that hole, they've consistently dug themselves deeper into it. And it's, you know, I don't see them getting out of it this year. That's for damn sure. So you may have just answered my question with that one, but I, the 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 message that he seemed to, Jeff Birding uh, seemed to be trying to convey was that, like, we've made mistakes, we understand that, we know we didn't get it right, but we're fixing it, we're changing it, and this time, trust us, it's going to be better. That was my, at least, distillation of what he was saying, and that makes me wonder if you think things will be different going forward, if not this season, then maybe next season or the one after, or do you think we are likely to get another, okay, this time we're resetting, but this time we know for sure we've got it right? I mean... I don't have faith that they that they know what they're doing right now. Um, I think they'll be better. They should be better. They're more talented, right? But they've they've given up I think 14 goals in four games. I want to say mm-hmm. it's not great. No, it's not <laughs> to say, to say the least, right? They've scored. They have they have a better attack this year for sure. Like Lucho Costa, he looked lively on Sunday against Miami, and he did some good things, right? So like there is some there's some real quality on the field for them. Um, I do question how long that locker room is going to hold together. You have a lot of big personalities. And if you continue losing games in the way that they've lost them, uh, there's going to be some bad vibes and it's going to be a hell of a job for Yopstam to keep that group motivated and focused and united. Um, and if he isn't able to do that, then these things can fall apart really fast, right? And get worse really yep. fast. And Cincinnati was Birding was open about not having a great locker room that first season. 
when they really struggled in 2019 and how that played a role. Um, and you know, like that could happen again. And I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like sometimes I run the risk of making too much of MLS as this unique beast. Um, because you can come in and if you give it the proper respect and you pay attention to the history and you try and learn, you can do a good job. But if you come in with zero experience, there's a learning curve and it's taking time. And Nikomp hasn't been the quickest learner, I think it's fair to say. And so you have him, he hired Ron Jans. Ron Jans left in scandalous circumstances. Yop Stom comes in, nobody with any MLS experience. And that's how they entered the league. Nobody really with any MLS experience besides Sasano as a player and Koch briefly as an assistant. And it's just, there's no know-how there. And MLS is a different league than any other league in the world. Like, you have to understand it if you want to operate efficiently. And they haven't shown that they understand it. So until they do, I'm not going to really believe it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And I think that's fair. I want to ask you a question about Cincinnati, about two different teams. But first, I want to ask you, it's a, it's a multi-part question. Uh, who is, you think, the best example of a well-run expansion team? That first season, hitting the ground running, making smart decisions. I'm assuming it's Atlanta, but I wanted to ask before I moved on. Yeah, Atlanta was awesome, okay. man. They hit on everything, right? LAFC was really, really good, too. Um, no doubt about it. Um, I think, but, like, on the, you know, those teams had huge budgets, right? Mm-hmm. And so that really makes it easier. Right. Let's call it what it is. It makes it easier. I think Nashville did a really good job and I criticized them for some of the things during their build. But I think Mike Jacobs and Gary Smith did a really nice job of saying, hey, we know what our budget is. We know that we're not going to be able to go out there and play pretty soccer and have success. Like we just don't have the money to do that, particularly on the timeline the expansion timeline that we're on. So we're going to build a team heavy on MLS experience with guys that know the league, that understand the league, Dax McCarty, Andy Volkadoy, Walker Zimmerman, and we're going to be really committed and really united. We're going to defend as a group. We're going to defend hard. We're going to defend well, and we're going to look to hit teams on the break, and that's going to be our foundation, and we're going to try and build from there, right? And we're going to try and add on to that from there. And so I'm curious to see what they're able to add on to it this year. But I think that's a really good example of a, of a team that did it without a huge budget. And, you know, they didn't go on and win, right? They weren't MLS mm-hmm. Cup champions or anything like that. But they made the playoffs and they made it all the way to conference semifinal. Um, so they had a really good year. And I think Austin has some of those similar principles too, although they've spent a little bit more money than Nashville did in year one. So if we have those kind of like three tiers of sorts of like the Atlanta LAFC spending the money for success, uh, Nashville, Austin, to some extent, like spending less money, but still having success. And then maybe on the other side would be somebody like Cincinnati. Where do you see St. Louis and Charlotte trending? Oh, it's so hard to say. You know, neither of them even have a coach yet. Right. Charlotte signed a few players. They were meant to come into the league uh, this year, I believe. Mm-hmm. And they're coming in next season. Um, you know. Both hired GMs without experience in MLS. Uh, so in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, but in my opinion, that's a slight mark against them. Charlotte has assembled, you know, they've built out their technical staff with people that are experienced in the league. So that that helps for sure. Um, but I mean, I don't know. To answer your question, like if I had to guess, I would say I expect more from Charlotte than I do from St. Louis. But who knows, man? A lot could change. Um, I don't think either is going to set the world on fire early on. And how many new logos do you think the crew will have had by the time we get Charlotte and St. Louis playing? I mean, well, they're averaging, what, uh, three per week right now. So (laughs) I think that puts us at around like uh, 110, 120. Yeah, Yeah. that feels about right. Uh, I really enjoyed your article about the crew rebrand, especially that you made it, I think, 13 paragraphs before noting that it was all very unnecessary. That did seem like a thing that you were wrestling with yourself to not say immediately, (laughs) but you did get there. Uh, Maybe I should have. Yeah, it did really feel like that was fighting to get out the whole time. What were your sort of takeaways from this crew rebrand saga? It was very unnecessary. Like, it... It's so stupid, man. Like, that's my takeaway. It's like, how dumb is this? Like, how dumb and unnecessary and forced and just, like, causing your shooting yourself in the foot to the millionth degree? Like, it's just like, what are you doing? What? Like, why Why are you doing this? No one wanted this. No. Who wanted this? And what do you think you're achieving? 
Like, that's the thing. It's like, even if you knock this rebrand out of the park, what are you achieving? Are you turning Columbus into a global soccer city? No, you're not doing that. Not with a new logo or a new name. Are you kidding? That's not going to do anything for you globally. You're still Columbus. No one even knows. No one, even, no one in Europe knows where Columbus is, right? I like Columbus. It's a nice town. I'm not trying to crap on Columbus. But like, like this whole idea, oh, we need to be a global brand. Mm. Shut up. Sell out your own stadium. Like, give me a break. Yeah. So, so that's one. And, and just like, why? The logo was good. People love the crew name. Like, why? What are you achieving? You're opening a new stadium, right? That's the pop, right? That's, that's the thing that's going to pull in locals that haven't really paid attention to you before, right? And you're doing it on the back of a championship. Like, you don't need a rebrand to sell this thing. Everything's there already. Just activate on it. And instead, you do this ridiculous process where you consult your fans and you do your focus groups, but you don't actually listen to what they say. Nope. And then you come up with something that is predictably and universally hated, right? Yep. And then you have to go through the exercise of canceling it and saying, whoops, and redoing it a week later. And I guess to, to be kind and to be fair, credit to them for acknowledging they messed up and fixing it. But why did you mess up in the first place? This is so dumb, man. It's just like there are too many people, I guess, with not enough to do in MLS um, or at the ownership level. And so they're just like, oh, like, let's rebrand. Like, that's something that we can do. Like, that's a way to occupy our time. Like, no, just focus on facilitating a better atmosphere in your own stadium. Focus on engaging with your fans. Focus on putting a good product on the field. That's how you market this stuff. It's hard to pull off, but the concept isn't tough to understand, right? Yeah. It's hard to actually achieve and execute, but like, just be conscientious and work hard at all of those things and try and be good at your job, and you don't need to rebrand to pull new people in. And like, no one even cares, man. Like, No one roots for a soccer team because of their logo. Like, Come on. Honestly... I, I don't mean this in jest. Do you think there's a chance that owners do think that's part of it? That like if we have an attractive new logo, people in England and the Netherlands will Yes, they like, say that. They say it in the press releases. This is part of us becoming a global brand. Columbus said that in their release, Chicago said it in theirs, Montreal said it. Um I don't know if Houston did, but they I mean they probably did. They all do. But like, but like they really think that the crest itself is what like do they just want people wearing that in Europe and Africa and Asia itself necessarily it's the whole vibe right it's the crest it's the name it's the feeling right and like it's something new and trendy and cool Ugh. and it's Ugh. just like man no one's gonna root for MLS because they think the graphic design is cool nah like if a person decides hey I'm gonna follow MLS what team am I gonna pick then maybe they pick based on something like that, right? Yeah. Like, I think there are a million examples of Americans doing that with European teams, right? So fair enough there. But they need to cross the bridge of, hey, I'm going to follow MLS first, right? And and the reason people follow the Premier League, right, the reason they cross that bridge in England is, oh, like, this is a good product on the field. It's fun and exciting to watch. And in the stands, the atmospheres are fantastic, and that elevates my viewing experience. Like I said, it's not rocket science what, what people are interested in and what makes them interested in different sports leagues, right? It's hard to pull that off and it's hard to grow that and it's hard to build that, build that. But like, that's what you need. Like, that's what you need. You don't need this weird new logo. And, and like, it sucks, man, because like, the crew is a cool name, in my opinion. And I think it sort of straddles this line between American sports and like, global football really well right where it's not mm -hmm. a name that you would see in the nfl or the nba or college sports right but it's not really a name that you would see it's not a name you would see in europe either but it's sort of like right in between and i would say the same for the revolution for the fire for the union um for a few of these other teams right and that's the space that mls exists in right it's sort of this in-between area and so I thought it really like captured that nicely and it had this history behind it because the fans gave it meaning for 25 years. And then new owners come in and they're like, nah, we don't need that. And 
I still haven't heard a good reason articulated as to why they thought they needed to do this. Well, and this is this is where I end up with it. And I'm not a crew fan, so like my opinion, I will say doesn't doesn't matter or doesn't really matter. Uh, but like I have seen some people saying like good on them, they walked it back, they listened to the fans, and that's what an owner needs to be a person who will listen and adjust. And and I feel like if they were truly doing that, they would have done that from the outset and realized yeah. that this wasn't going to be popular. I, I mean, it's better it's better than doubling down and sticking with their guns on. It, right mm-hmm. which is what montreal has done their fans don't like three brand right that's true that's true and, and like they're they're saying no like too bad this is it deal with it right so it could be worse right it's not the worst case scenario but it's it's also not good and it's i don't know it's embarrassing right like let's call it what it is it's embarrassing for the crew it's embarrassing i think a little bit for mls and this like dude like this is the second time in two years that this has happened in mls like that's kind of ridiculous, right? Like you don't like I don't maybe I'm wrong here, but I feel like you don't really see rebrands get walked back very often in like business or sports. No. You know? I think Leeds like, is the only other one I can think of outside of Major League Soccer. And, and it's just like I, I don't know, like what's going on? Like can we do a little better? I I still think that we just we're currently in the age of out of touch billionaire white dude like surrounded by yes man thinks ah yeah like people are gonna love this it's gonna be great and then he has a billionaire white woman you know good call she's she's the one that runs the crew she's in charge so you know so just billionaires in general then we can just make that a category i agree out of touch and and listen like if they had come out and said from the very beginning the onset of this process hey we're exploring a rebrand because you know we're gonna keep the crew name because you love it and it predates pre-court but Precourt did this logo, and we want to shed all ties with Anthony Precourt. Mm-hmm. And we want to include you on the design process and make it collaborative. Like, I think crew fans would have embraced that. You know what I mean? And yeah. instead, they, they did it their own way. Um, and I think that's where I just still stay confused as to, like, is it like we want the surprise factor? We want the unveiling? I just don't get why. That seems like a slam dunk is incorporate the fan base. Maybe you end up getting disparate positions and that's the the, the i think in design you need one voice at the Mm -hmm. end of the day and i think the fire i would guess are running into this sort of issue where you're getting a million different cooks in the kitchen and that Mm -hmm. can be counterproductive right so i get why you kind of don't open it up all the way um but i mean at the same time it's just like open it up for ideas you know you're not gonna please everybody right understand that but you can incorporate different elements from different places that people suggest and you can make it feel more collaborative than they did. Right. And that would have saved everyone a whole lot of trouble, but you know, uh, to quote Darren Ravel, which is not something that anyone should really ever do, you know, or to paraphrase him, you could be like, I'm worried for our club, but this is tremendous content. So can't really (laughs) knock it from that side of it. Right. No, I mean, I don't think you can. I think, we're talking about it. There was that conspiracy theory. Do maybe, you buy into maybe that? That's it, right? It's just like they—they're just faking us out. <laughs> uh, final thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I appreciate how generous you've been with your time. Uh, was about the Houston Dynamo. Uh, we don't often end yeah. up talking about them when you're on the show, but that's all about to change because we're going to talk about them for, uh, very briefly right now. Sounds like they're about to get a new owner, as are the Houston Dash. What's the latest there? Yeah. So. The team has been up for sale for a while now, and it emerged on Wednesday that majority owner Gabriel Brenner is close to an agreement to sell the team to Ted Siegel. So there's not a ton out there about Ted Siegel. He is based in New York slash New Jersey. He owns a company that um, is called EJS Group, and it's a real estate development and finance company. His father, I believe owns uh i can't remember the name of it it's it's a family business siegel used to work for it and they do a lot of stuff in the power and energy space and i believe that's where the money is from in this deal ted siegel is a young guy i think early 40s from what i've been able to gather um so you know it sounds like it's going to be a 400 million dollar or so purchase price um and that's you know that does not include the land that the stadium or the training facility sit on because those are owned by the county um, through the stadium authority. So, you know, it's that's a lot of money for for Houston. Um, but 
the sense is that this team is a sleeping giant. You know, it's a big, big market. And the demographics are good in terms of age, in terms of diversity, in terms of people that like soccer in that area. And the Dynamo have failed to tap into that completely. And it's bizarre because they have this stadium that's right downtown. And Houston isn't like a super centralized place. But they drew better when they were playing, sharing the college football stadium with the University of Houston in a less centralized location. And why? Because the team was good. And mm-hmm. it's not now. It's like, some, like again, another club that's done a rebrand. And it's like, who cares? Put a good team on the field and people will go. Like, do that. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Um, so it, we'll see. I mean, we'll see if Ted Siegel and his group are able to do that. I think it's fair to say if they're spending $400 million on the team that they are going to be more willing to spend than Brenner and his group were. Um, and for those of you wondering, yes, James Harden will retain his minority stake in the club. So I, I, had read I know that, that was I, had read I know that. that was high on the list. So there's a lot. I mean, the Brooklyn Nets, that's the... MLS team of 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 the NBA. Steve Nash, part owner of the Whitecaps. Kevin Durant, part owner of the Philly Union. Harden, as mentioned, with the Dynamo. So, you got a lot of ties there. It's kind of weird. We do. I I think like the tie that I most appreciate is you tying in the idea of the rebrand is supposed to be when you're good or like you're like be good and then people will be really I mean, interested. Who cares? And, like, yeah. oh, just be good. Like, oh my god. That's, I, I said this to Paul. It's just like, to me, the idea of rebranding is to say like, okay, things have not been good. This is our fresh start. And from here, we're going to be good. We're going to make smart choices. And it's like, you're you're literally, or I guess not literally, but you are visually hitting a reset button that should right. then correspond to what your team is actually doing. And I don't really get the idea of let's just change up the logo and that's what people will care about. So I'm hoping that we see less of that and more on-field production and then rebranding if the situation requires. It's easier to change a logo than it is to fix a roster, right? Yeah. So if you have people if you have people in a club that are like, hey, we're flagging, we need something, we need a jolt, right? Let's do a rebrand. <laughs> like it's easier to fix that than to get results on the field. So uh, I don't know. It's dumb, man. It's dumb. It's dumb. It's dumb. <laughs> on that note, that feels like a great note to end on. What are you guys talking about on uh, allocation disorder this week? Uh, we are going to talk a lot about salary stuff. Yay. We'll probably talk about some of the crew stuff, the the walk back. I don't think we'll spend a ton of time on that because it's been pretty well covered. Probably talk some USMNT. I, I don't know, man. We don't prepare for that show. You kidding? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I look forward to hearing your completely improvised, no rules, no plans at all uh, show. But for now, Sam, thank you very much for taking the time to talk U.S. roster and Major League Soccer with me. Thank you, Taylor. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening, and we will talk to you all again very soon. 